1: Good afternoon, whole life. Wow, you were raising the roof with those hymns. Oh my goodness. Beautiful. almost forgot I was supposed to still come up here and do this. So today we conclude our series on holy encounters. The encounters with Jesus, where Jesus interacts with people a little differently than we might expect. And today we're going to talk about reasonable doubt. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would hear the desires of our hearts. And I pray that you would help us hear the desires of yours. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. In July of 2015, evangelical Christians, along with the rest of America, logged into their Instagram accounts to watch cat videos and post pictures of their breakfast, (laughs) but on this particular day they were in for a surprise because Josh Harris had taken to Instagram to announce that he no longer identified as Christian. Now, if the name Josh Harris doesn't ring a bell for you, maybe this will. He wrote a little book called I Kissed Dating Goodbye. It sold millions of copies. And for a while, it was the go-to manual for evangelical Christians who wanted to sort of avoid temptation by skipping dating and moving directly to courtship and marriage. And so Josh became very popular He actually became kind of the poster child for sexual purity. So imagine how surprised they must have felt when they woke up and saw this. I have undergone a massive shift in regard to my faith in Jesus. The popular phrase for this is deconstruction. The biblical phrase is falling away. By all the measurements I have for defining a Christian, I'm not a Christian. The evangelical community took another hit not very long after that, when Marty Sampson, Hillsong musician, songwriter of some of the songs we've sung right here in this worship center, also took to social media to make an announcement. He pointed out how many pastors have moral failures He pointed out the scarcity of miracles. He pointed out that there are contradictions in the Bible. He pointed out the idea that it doesn't seem right that a God, a loving God could send people to a place just for not believing the right things. And he told his followers, I'm genuinely losing my faith. And because bad news apparently comes in threes, Not long after that, John Steingard, the lead singer for the Christian rock band Hawk Nelson, also took to social media and told his fans that he was stepping away from a belief in God. He had a long, sincere post talking about how he was raised a pastor's kid and how he wanted to serve God, and so he went into the ministry of Christian music. And he said he had his faith and he wore it like a sweater. It was comforting, but then at some point it was like pulling a string and that sweater started to unravel. He said his parents were praying for him that God would reveal himself to John. And John said, I would like it if God were there. In fact, I would prefer it. But that God would have to look different than the God I grew up with. And in the meantime, I have to be honest. Hmm. Triple rejection in quick succession. And the response from the Christian community was swift and severe. Apparently, hell hath no fury like the evangelical community scorned. And since I happened to be researching Deconstructing Christians, that whole Deconstructing Christian movement, for my dissertation, I thought, I'm going to go online and read the forums and see what people are saying. There were some people who expressed concern and care and offered their friendship. But I would say the majority of the responses could have melted the words right off my computer screen. Who do they think they are? Sure, you give them a platform and look what they do with it. How dare they? They're Christian leaders. How can they possibly, they must not have had a very good faith to begin with. They did not spend enough time in their Bibles, obviously. They're going to have to answer to God for this. If they were gonna do it, why didn't they just keep their mouths closed and leave? Why did they have to make a big announcement? They just wanted attention. We've talked a lot about the cost of following God. But when we watch Marty Sampson, Josh Harris, and John Steingard, and we see what happens to them, They lose their friends. They lose family members. They lose their church communities. They lose their reputations. They lose their sources of income. So yeah, there is a cost to following God. But apparently, if you're a member of the Christian community, there is also a severe cost for doubting God. Nothing stains a person quite like the stigma of doubt. And that's probably why out of all the disciples, there was only one who managed to emerge with an adjective attached to his name. You know who I'm talking about, don't you? (laughs) Doubting Thomas. I don't know about you, when I was a kid, my brother and I and our friends, we used to like to reenact Bible stories and play Bible characters and stuff like that. Anybody else do that? All right, good, Atari, it's you and me. Okay. But we would always be like, okay, I'm the one who's going to bring the Ten Commandments down from Mount Sinai. I get to be Daniel. I get to be lions. (laughs) But not ever in my memory do I remember somebody saying, I call Doubting Thomas. (laughs) I always had to be Zacchaeus. I don't know what that was about. But when I was a kid, Doubting Thomas, his very name was a cautionary tale. Don't be like Doubting Thomas. Don't doubt. Don't even let the tiniest thought of doubt take root in your mind or pass through your lips. Push it away. Don't inquire about things that don't seem logical to you. Don't question fallacies. Don't challenge the assertions of people who have said something or written something or claim to know something about God, just believe them because apparently that's faith, something that Doubting Thomas lacked. I'm just curious, how many of you have heard a sermon about Doubting Thomas before? Yeah, fair, Fair number. I've probably listened to more than my fair share of sermons in my life. It helped that I grew up in a pastor's house and I had a grandfather who was an evangelist. <laughs> but I heard a lot of sermons about Doubting Thomas. And it seems like preachers love to use Doubting Thomas as a foil character. To help buttress the congregational belief and help people understand that they can't stray very far outside these lines. Of course, there are those edgy inductive preachers who start out their sermons by sympathizing with Thomas. But you know what I found, at least in my experience, I don't know about you, by the time we get to the end of the sermon, before the closing prayer, the sympathetic preachers and the unsympathetic preachers have all arrived at the same place. You can doubt a little for a short period of time about certain things. But then you need to you need to stop doubting and get on with the program of believing because if you don't you don't belong here. And it works, doesn't it? I mean, it doesn't make people stop doubting, but it sure stops them from talking about it. And what it ends up doing is driving doubters into their metaphorical closets. Where they languish in the chaos of their existential and spiritual isolation. Where they come to church week after week and they perform a facade on the outside while on the inside their authenticity is twisted into knots. And it becomes harder and harder to maintain. And they sit there in the lonely tension of silence. But they know better than to say anything not about those doubts. Not about those questions. Because they've seen what happens to people who doubt. And eventually... They work up the courage to just leave. Researchers have been documenting a phenomenon over the past few decades. There has been a mass exodus of people leaving the Christian church. The Christian church is hemorrhaging members. In fact, the people who are leaving church have become the, la- the fastest growing demographic currently representing about 30% of the population. That's a lot of people. And of course, researchers like labels, so they chose a label for these people. A couple labels, actually, they're called the de-churched. They're called the duns, the people who have been there, done that with Christianity, and now they're just done. And as I was doing my research, it occurred to me, you know, if there are this many duns outside the church, how many almost duns are sitting in church every week with one foot out the door? Fortunately, I happened to find a researcher out of the University of Colorado who was asking, uh, University of Northern Colorado, who was asking that very question. So I talked to him. And he told me that he and his team estimate that 7 million people across the country are in church every week who are almost done. They're almost ready to leave, and when they leave, they're not coming back. We could call them the Doubting Thomases. Or if we want to be a contemporary, we could call them the Deconstructing Thomas's. We've talked a lot about this Thomas character, haven't we? Maybe we should look at his story. Well, some of you are about to tune out because you've heard the story of Doubting Thomas before and you're pretty sure you know what I'm going to say about it. I went to a conference one time that had a panel of professors and each of the professors taught a sacred text at a university. Some taught the Bible, some taught the Quran, some taught the Bhagavad Gita, but they all had the same problem with certain students. The students who were the hardest to teach were the ones who were familiar with the text. Because it was so difficult to get them to see the text with new eyes. So I thought, why don't we try out the new eyes thing this morning? Let's try it out. We've already looked at what happened. Well, I mean, we looked, at, we looked at the screen. We've already heard the beginning of the story. We know that the other disciples saw Jesus. We know that they told Thomas all about it, and they were very excited. And we know that Thomas basically laid out the parameters for his belief or his unbelief, however you want to look at it. And here's where I would like you to imagine that you have never heard this story before. For those of you who have not heard this story, that's going to be really easy. For those of you who have heard it, imagine that you've never heard this story before. What would be your expectation of what Jesus would do? Thomas, come on, man. We talked about this. I told you I was going to be betrayed. I told you I would suffer I told you they were going to kill me, and I told you that I would be back. Is any of this ringing a bell? (laughs) I mean, you're the one who said, Let us go that we may die with him. Were you speaking metaphorically? Like what? You were there when I raised that little girl back to life. You were there when I stopped the funeral procession and brought that widow's son back from the dead. And Thomas, you are standing right there literally a few weeks ago when I called Lazarus to come out of his grave after he'd been dead for four days. Why was this hard for you? But Jesus doesn't do that. He shows up in the room and he says to the disciples, peace be with you. And then he turns to Thomas And he says, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Now, you know what? You have to give doubting Thomas a little bit of credit because he was the only one of Jesus' disciples who wanted to know the truth about Jesus badly enough that he was willing to put his fingers into the wounds. And then Jesus says to Thomas, stop doubting and believe. Well, that pretty much covers it, doesn't it? (laughs) Cut it out. Stop. Quit. Except that, if you look at this in the Greek, it doesn't actually say stop doubting and believe. There's a different word for doubt, and this is not it. Jesus says, stop not believing and believe. Now, we can argue about semantics, but I would contend that there is a big difference between doubting and not believing. Because doubting is still open to the possibility of truth, whatever that truth might be. And then Thomas believes him. And he says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus says to him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Hmm. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Interesting. Interesting. You know, I promise not to drag you into an entire abyss of Greek this morning, but the word translated blessing or blessed has a really interesting story. The word is Makarios. And the early Greeks used the word Makarios specifically to describe the gods. The gods were Makarios because they lived in a different realm than mere mortals. They lived outside of the realm of human suffering. They had everything they needed. They weren't touched by poverty or pain or death or anything like that. They lived in the lap of luxury. They were Makarios. And then later the word evolved to include the wealthy people, the upper crust of society. The people who were prosperous and fortunate and wealthy and had everything they needed. The wealthy people, the fortunate, the enviable people were Makarios. Which is why it's so interesting that Matthew's Jesus decides to use this word when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are they that mourn. Blessed are you when you are persecuted. Because people listening would have said, wait a minute, what? What? Happy am I when I'm persecuted? (laughs) Fortunate am I when I mourn? What are you even talking about? I imagine it really got their attention. But I don't think that Jesus is using this word makarios paradoxically here. I think that it makes sense. Why do I think it makes sense? Because happy are those who believe. Belief feels good, doesn't it? It feels comforting. It feels secure. It feels like belonging. But doubt I'm not talking about the little doubts that sort of hover around the edges of your faith. I'm talking about sincere and profound doubt is agonizingly painful. So you know what? Maybe Jesus wasn't making a judgment when he said, blessed are those who believe without seeing. Maybe he was just making an observation. But even without, uh, without that explanation, with that explanation, it still, still kind of sounds like there's a little bit of chiding in there, doesn't it? Well, Thomas, you believe because you've seen me. But blessed are those who believe without seeing. <laughs> doesn't it sound a little bit like more cherished are those who believe without seeing? More holy are those who believe without seeing? Better examples are those who believe without seeing. Isn't that kind of what it sounds like a little bit? Of course, people who believe without seeing are happier. Because if you are doubting and you are in a community where doubting is seen as something to be alarmed about, something sinful or shocking or dirty that you have to hide then, of course, you're not going to be Makarios. But Thomas is kind of singled out here, isn't he? I mean, the other disciples had already seen Jesus, so can you really blame him? Although, maybe he's the only one that actively expressed disbelief when he heard about Jesus' resurrection. Maybe that's why he's called Doubting Thomas. Well, let's see what Luke has to say, shall we? On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And they were wondering about this, and while they were wondering, two men in lightning-colored clothes, I love that, lightning-colored clothes, appeared to them, and they were terrified, and they bowed down. But then the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. He is risen. And so the women go running back to the disciples. And when they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to the others Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and then there are others with them. They told this to the disciples, but they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Wait, what? They didn't believe either. If I were Thomas, I would be filing a protest. <laughs> Why am I doubting Thomas? At least I didn't call it nonsense. Doubting Bartholomew, now that kind of has a ring to it. But you know it's interesting, not a single one... Ooh, I take that back. There was one disciple, the disciple John. He claimed that the moment he saw the empty tomb, he believed... Okay, disciple that Jesus loves. We believe you. (laughs) But other than John, none of the disciples believed when they heard the news. None of the disciples believed just because someone came along and told them what to believe. Well, that's awkward. But you know, at least when the disciples finally saw Jesus, when they were in Jesus' presence and they saw the nail marks in his hands and they saw the wound in his side, all of their questions and all of their doubts melted away. And they felt secure again. And they were convinced. And they lived happily ever after. Right? Let's see what Matthew has to say. Then, this is after the resurrection, right before the ascension, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him. But are you kidding me? Some doubted? Doubted what? They were right there in the presence of Jesus and some doubted? This is a problem. This is a pivotal moment. Jesus only has minutes left of his earthly ministry. And here he's got disciples standing in front of him doubting. He's going to have to do something drastic. He's going to have to separate the sheep from the goats. He's going to have to weed out the bad ones and start over with a fresh batch. about to give the great commission to go out into all the world and teach and baptize. (sighs) And so Jesus looks at all the doubters and he says, nothing. He doesn't even mention them. It's almost like he's not too terribly concerned about it. You know what else is interesting? The other disciples didn't get together on their own and decide. Matthew doesn't spill the tea and tell us which ones were the doubting ones. But the other disciples didn't get together and say, all right, we need to fix this. There's no record of them sitting the doubters down and saying, let us explain this to you one more time. There's no record of them saying how ashamed you should be. There's no record of them saying, you know what, you're going to have to go because your doubt might discourage someone else. There's no record of that. In fact, Jesus sends them out. All of them. And 50 days later, they were all there at the event of Pentecost. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, all of them. Apparently, when it came to Jesus and his disciples, doubting didn't preclude them from participating in anything. It did not preclude them from being disciples. It did not preclude them from being sent out. It did not preclude them from being baptized with the Holy Spirit. So why would we assume that people who doubt need to take their mess somewhere else? If Jesus didn't feel threatened and the disciples didn't feel threatened, are we disciples? Why would we feel threatened? And I'm going to speak generally now, so don't don't panic. I'm just going to ask a question. If the truth that we have is so fragile that it breaks when someone doubts it or asks it hard questions, then maybe we need to ask ourselves if what we have is actually truth. And if it's not, do we have the courage to trade it for a truer truth? Maybe a present truth. And maybe doubt can sometimes push us toward a truer truth. Christianity started out as a belief in a person. And somehow over the next 2,000 years, it gradually evolved to be more like belief in beliefs. And then we take those beliefs and we use them to divide people who's in, and who's out? Now, there's nothing wrong with beliefs. No, of course not. Beliefs help us frame our thinking, beliefs help us conceptualize truth. But our ultimate commitment should be to the truth, not necessarily to the belief. And this morning, if you're feeling relatively secure in your beliefs and you're not haunted by doubt, blessed are you, happy are you, fortunate are you, enviable are you, and I pray for you that those beliefs continue to be life-giving to you. I pray that they sustain you throughout all the seasons and that nothing ever happens to you that shakes you at your core and causes you to have have questions. I pray that for you. But believers, if Jesus didn't chase away disciples for doubting, why would we? Research suggests that people don't leave because they doubt. They leave because of unexpressed doubt. When people have a safe place to be authentic in their spiritual journeys, they don't need to leave. So you know what? Hold on to your beliefs. But you know what? Be merciful to those who doubt. Or the revised Melanie version, be merciful to those who are deconstructing. (laughs) You know why? Because people don't choose to deconstruct. And people do not waste time and energy and emotion deconstructing things they don't care about. People deconstruct the things that matter to them. And you know what, sometimes the process of deconstructing means letting go of something that used to bring you comfort, and that feels a whole lot like grief. And I know this because I have had to go through my own deconstruction process. My entire picture of God had to be deconstructed. And I assure you, I didn't wake up one morning and think, hmm, I think I will deconstruct the divine today. And I assure you that I didn't deconstruct because it didn't matter. I deconstructed my picture of God because I had to. I didn't have a choice and because it mattered to me that much. Because I couldn't be satisfied anymore with a thumbnail picture of God that had human fingerprints all over it. I couldn't be satisfied with a sanitized picture of God or God in a box. I couldn't do that anymore anymore. And to my friends and people around me, my process probably looked a whole lot like cynicism, and anger, and garden-variety doubt. But you want to know what was going on inside? Inside, I was crying out, God, cover me with your hand and then show me your glory. I don't care if I'm singed by your presence. I just want what's real. Yes, 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 yes. And I will, I will follow you into parties uninvited with my jar of perfume. And you will not be able to disentangle my fingers from the edge of your robe. And I will wrestle you all through the night of my dark night of the soul. And when the dawn comes, I'm still not letting go until you bless me. Yes. 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 Even if it scares me to death. Even if it's unpredictable, even if it challenges everything I thought I knew, I still want what's real. Some people are satisfied with seeing. Blessed are you. Some people are satisfied with not seeing. Blessed are you. But some of us have to actually touch the wound. And if it was okay for Jesus, then why can't it be OK for us? At whole life, we're family. We're not always going to agree on everything. But it's okay, because we belong first. And that includes all of the disciples, including Thomas.
2: So uh, now is the time of of the service where we have a response. And so for the next 45 minutes, I'm just kidding. (laughs) I know that we're the only thing uh, keeping you from lunch, so we're going to keep this brief. Um, But uh, this is the time where you can send in questions. And uh, because we're so low on time, I would just recommend emailing them at this point to uh, podcast at wholelife.church. And we will answer them in the podcast. But I'm going to give you just one here. And you can choose to not answer it and Push it to later if you want, but (laughs) um, this comes from Nashville Tim, or as we call him now, Front Row Tim. (laughs) What in the world,
1: (laughs) Um, Nashville Tim? You are in trouble again. Nashville Tim is my husband, uh, by the way. (laughs) It's okay.
2: But uh, Tim asks, what might be the best way for me or us to touch the wounds of Jesus? What 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 can we, you know, use as proof?
1: I'm sorry, I can't answer that now or on the podcast, and I'll tell you why. Because that's personal.
2: Personal.
1: It's different for every single person.
2: Uh, for me, it's uh, I'm going to paraphrase Blade Runner because I like movies. But uh, <laughs> towards the beginning of the film, someone doubts, and they say it's because you've never seen a miracle, mm-hmm. and uh, that for me, seeing a miracle is instantly like proof in my in my mind. For me personally, you said personally, uh, Mm -hmm. of that's my touching the wounds of Jesus. Of like, wow, I've seen with my own eyes a miracle. Mm
1: -hmm. That's awesome. Thank you.
2: All right. Well, thank you. And and by the way, it's podcast at wholelife.church. The podcast is called This Is Whole Life. And it's available pretty much everywhere that you can find podcasts. So thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Stanley. Before I let you go... I want to remind you that next week, if you show up at this building, all of the doors are going to be locked, because we are going to be at church retreat. We're going to be at Camp Kalakwa, and I want to see all of you Hi, there. this is
0: Randy McGill. And for those Podcast of you who are worshiping online and today, we have not forgotten church.
1: about you. I'm so Loving sorry. Loving people into a lifelong friendship with God there, is our mission the at the internet whole life church, is something to be desired. and our podcasts are designed to help but facilitate conversations for you that help so us you grow together in that pursuit. In with us next week. Now that you've heard
0: the message for this all
1: right. week, don't forget to check out I'm the whole life takeaways
0: for this message. I love you. Swipe up in today's show notes and join the conversation.
1: Your world.
0: Speaking of conversations, each Wednesday morning we take a closer look at the week's message. That's right, the one you just listened to. We discuss practical ways to apply spiritual lessons and ask honest questions about the issues we face as Christians. All focused through the lens of grace. Your voice is a welcomed addition to that conversation. We encourage your thoughts and your questions by sending a voicemail or text to 407 965 1607 or send an email to podcast at wholelife.church. You can find everything podcast related on our website, wholelife.church slash podcast. And plan on spending every Tuesday evening and Wednesday morning with us as we bring you the Whole Life Church inspiration you love straight into your headphones. Thanks for listening and have a great week.